The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 67. In the year 2001, uh, I was with some friends at a football game, and little did I know that my life was going to change forever that night. Because at some point during the evening, I, I turned around, I don't know why, but I turned around and I looked up, further up in the bleachers, and I saw her, a blonde goddess. Yes, Holly was blonde in those days, I promise, okay, I'm not talking about somebody else. I was, I was smitten, and, and I call her a blonde, I've said that forever, and I call her a blonde goddess, because from that moment on, I basically worshipped the ground that she walked on. I sought to serve her in any way possible to prove my love to her. I wanted to build a relationship with her. I wanted to build community with her. And all of my Holly-centered worship, serving, and community resulted in a Holly-centered mission. I wanted to marry this woman. Mission accomplished. My holly-centered worship, serving, and community culminated in a holly-centered mission. For the past month, uh, we've been going through a series entitled Rooted with the goal of seeing how everything we do at Shades is rooted in this purpose, glorifying God by loving him, loving others, and making disciples among all peoples. And we've been using this mark that you see right above that purpose statement. We've been using that mark to help us remember what keeps us, how, to help us remember how we remain rooted in this. You can kind of see the outline of a tree, a simple drawing of a tree there in the mark. That's to remind us how we stay rooted in this purpose. And we've said over and over again that the way we stay rooted in this purpose is by being gospel-centered. That's why you see the cross, the heart of the gospel, right at the heart of this mark. The way we're going to remain rooted is by keeping everything that we do centered on the gospel. And so we've taken the past several weeks to see how all of our worship keeps us centered on the gospel. We've looked and we've seen how all of our serving keeps us centered on the gospel. And last week, Brad walked us through how all of our community keeps us centered on the gospel. And Shades, gospel-centered worship, serving, and community culminates in gospel-centered mission. Just like my holly-centered worship-serving community culminated in a holly-centered mission, gospel-centered worship-serving and community, it culminates in a gospel-centered mission. We saw this at the end of Brad's sermon last week. Right at the end of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, This is how the passage concludes. Brad walked us through those verses showing us how the church worshiped together, how they served one another, how they were in community together, and what was the culmination of it all? Verse 47. They were praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Mission was the culmination. Gospel-centered worship serving a community culminated in gospel-centered mission, and ours does too. Shades, it must. It's not just that we would like it to. It must, or we won't remain gospel-centered. 
Our worship, our worship either displays the worth of God to the world. That's what worship is meant to do. Show that he is worthy. Lift him up as worthy before the world. Our worship either does that. That's missional. Our worship either does that or it just becomes an event all about my own experience and my own feelings. Our serving, it either displays the God who empowers us to serve so that he gets the glory. That's 1 Peter 4.11. And our serving, do it all in the power that God provides so that in everything he gets the glory. Our serving either does that or our serving is about us doing good things in our own power so that we get the glory. It's either missional, showing God and his power, or it's not, and our community is the same. Our community either displays the reality that Jesus is what holds this crazy group of people together. I don't know anything else that can hold such a diverse group of people together. And so our community either puts that reality on display to the world that Christ is what connects us, or we're just another social club that does gather around our common interests instead of around Christ. You see, worship, serving, and community must culminate in mission in order to remain gospel-centered. Mission keeps us gospel-centered. How? It's all we want to talk about. It's all we want to explore for the rest of this morning. How? We've, we've looked at that question with worship, serving, and community. Let's look at it with mission. How does mission keep us centered on the gospel? And to answer that question, we are in Psalm 67. Psalm 67. And you heard it read just a moment ago, and I hope you immediately noticed that this is a missional prayer. It's a prayer centered on mission. All prayer is meant to be prayer centered on mission. Because all prayer is aimed at the glory of God. Him being glorified. Him being, therefore it's missional. Right here we have a perfect example in Psalm 67. You can see clearly that it's a missional prayer right in its first two verses. Look at it with me. The psalmist, we don't know who he is, he prays. May God be gracious to us, to God's people. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us so that... It's a causal preposition right there. So that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. This is a prayer for God to be known among the nations. If you look at verse 3, it's a prayer for God to be praised among the nations. You look at verse 4, it's a prayer for him to be enjoyed among the nations. You look at verse 7, it's a prayer for him to be feared among the nations. This is a prayer for God to be known, praised, enjoyed, and feared. That's worship. It's a prayer for God to be worshipped to the ends of the earth. This is a prayer centered on mission. And I think, I think it shows us how. How mission keeps us centered on the gospel. In this short prayer, I think we're going to see three ways. Three ways that mission keeps us centered on the gospel. So for the rest of our time, let's tackle them one at a time. First, mission keeps us centered on the God of the gospel. How does it keep us gospel-centered? Mission keeps us centered on the God of the gospel. Look at verse 1 again. May God be gracious to us. And bless us. If we stop right there, God be gracious to us, 
Plus, if we stop right there, that sounds like the average prayer that people pray. That sounds like the average prayer that I pray. Lord, bless me. Like those three words summarize the essence of most of my, our, everyone's praying. I mean, all our requests in one way or another are for for blessing, whether we want the blessing of health or the blessing of health regained, healing, whether we want uh, the blessing of reconciled relationships or safe travel or job opportunity, whatever. Whatever the request, like the essence of it is asking God to bless us. Our prayers are typically centered on us. Like God is the great vending machine in the sky. And if I put in my correct prayer coinage, then I can get out the blessing that I want. And if I don't, I kick the machine. Because something's wrong with it. Is that, is that how the psalmist is praying here? I don't think so. Because... The psalmist, yes, he prays to be blessed, but he tells us how he wants God to bless him, and he tells us why. And both of those things center this prayer on God, not on the psalmist. He tells us how he wants to be blessed and why. Look at that with me. How does he want God to bless him? He prays, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. This isn't three separate requests. Like, be gracious to me, also bless me, also make your face shine upon me. It's one right after the other that's explained, it's getting more explicit with what he's asking. Be gracious to me. How? Bless me. How? Make your face to shine upon me. Give, that's a prayer for God's presence. Give me you. Old Testament scholar Alan Ross says that God's shining face represents his presence, the beaming expression of a pleased father. Psalmist is praying for God's gracious presence, not his presence of judgment and condemnation for his sin. No, be gracious to me. Show up in my life in a way that brings salvation, in a way where I get you, in a way where my sin is forgiven and I can have you Give me you in your glory. The psalmist is praying for God's presence. That's the blessing he wants because he wants the greatest blessing. And he knows there's no greater blessing than God himself. God is categorically the greatest blessing. I think that the psalmist prays for that because that truth has likely been spoken into his life throughout all of his days. There's a a blessing in Numbers chapter 6 that the high priest was to speak over the people of Israel quite regularly in order to drill into their head and into their heart what it means to be blessed. And these are the words the high priest was to speak to the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Does that sound familiar? Lord, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. These are the words the psalmist is praying. He's lifted them, probably because they were drilled into his heart and into his head. And this is what is defined blessing for him. God, I want you, your face, your presence, your pleasure, your salvation, you. 
It's not that the psalmist doesn't pray for other blessings, like health, like provision. Verse 6, when we get there, it's actually going to indicate that this entire psalm is likely offered at harvest time. He's going to thank God for the earth yielding its, its increase. And so this prayer, it's partly, but only partly, it's partly a thanksgiving for a bountiful harvest. But verse 1 shows us that there is a greater blessing than a bountiful harvest. God. Bountiful harvest or not. I want God. That truth is is echoed all throughout Scripture in places like Habakkuk 3, where the prophet says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He's not a heavenly vending machine, or when I'm not getting the material blessings that I want, I kick it, no. As long as I still get him, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God, in God. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This is what's going on in the heart of the psalmist. Is this what goes on in our hearts? Is this what goes on in, in our prayers? Shades, it's, it is okay, it is good to pray for provision. But is our deepest prayer, God, in provision or in lack, I want you? Like if you set options in front of me and one option is I get all the provision that I think I need but not you? Or I lack everything but get you, I take the lack. Moses prayed that way in Exodus 33. In Exodus 33, the people had rebelled and God said, Fine, Moses, I'll let you take the people into the promised land. I will give you everything I ever promised you except my presence. And Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, don't lead us up from this wilderness. We will live and die in the desert as long as we get you. It's okay to pray for healing. It's good. But our deepest prayer is in healing or in sickness. I want you. That's how Paul prays in 2 Corinthians 12 with his thorn in his flesh, whatever that is. He prays for God to take it away multiple times, three times, and God doesn't do it. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, I'm not going to take it away, but I'm going to sustain you. You'll get more of me. And Paul says, that's okay. I'll boast in it then. Because I get to show you to the, to the world. I want you. It's okay, Shades, to pray for our needs. But our deepest need is God. And getting him is the good news of the gospel. He is the gospel. That you get him. A lot of people think that the gospel is that I get forgiveness of, of sins. So my guilt is assuaged. My shame is dealt with. 
I get a new identity. All of those are great and wonderful, glorious blessings of the gospel, but they are not the deep, ultimate reality that you get in the gospel. They are means to get you to an end. Forgiveness of your sins, dealing with your guilt, dealing with your shame, the giving you of a new identity is all to make you into a person who can get God. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for righteous, for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. So that we get the greatest blessing. He is the good news of the gospel. This is how the psalmist prays for blessing. Not by centering on himself, but by centering on the God of the gospel. Why does he pray this way? Why does he pray? He's glad that we asked. Look at verse 2. So that, here's why I want you, I want your presence, so that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Why does the psalmist pray for God as his greatest blessing? So that the world may see that God is is the greatest blessing. He prays for God to be his greatest treasure so that the world may see God is the greatest treasure. He prays to experience God's grace so that he might proclaim God's grace. He prays to know God so that he might make him known. God, I want you as my treasure so I can show you off as the ultimate supreme treasure to the world. This is what we all do with what we treasure. This is why social media is a thing. Because people take whatever they treasure and want to show it to everybody and want you to treasure it too. We are crazy evangelistic creatures. Just not with Jesus, more with like whatever we're eating for dinner. Isn't this good news? We, we all do this with our treasure. We don't just like experiencing the pleasure of it. We love to share it. Somehow that increases the joy. Like joy is incomplete until it is shared. We all know that to be true. Joy is incomplete until it's shared. So yesterday... Uh, my two-and-a-half-year-old Asher, he was the first to wake up in the house. And we know this uh, because he woke Holly up next. Um, why he would take his own life into his hands? By waking up his mother on a Saturday morning before she has to be up? I do not know, but there he is, like at the corner of the bed, head just popping up. Mama, mama, mama. Why did he do this? Because he couldn't wait to share the joy of what he'd found. He'd gone to the pantry, decided to get breakfast for himself, and he came back and he was like, look, mama, a sucker! <laughs> like leftover Halloween candy sucker that should have been thrown away, but still a sucker. Thought this will make a great breakfast. And he was so excited that he had to share it. He should have known his mother would immediately pop it right out of his mouth and be like, you can't have a sucker for, for breakfast. Now, 
She did give him Saturday, so we give our kids sugary cereal on Saturdays only, so she did give him that. I don't, I promised I would share that when I asked her permission to share this story. It's like, I will not paint you as just like the horrible person who steals suckers from children. <laughs> but he just couldn't help himself. He, he had this joy that had to be Shared. Joy is incomplete until it's shared. The Apostle John tells us this in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. He tells the people he's writing to, I'm writing to you so that our, the people he's writing with, our joy may be complete. We've got something to share with you, and our joy won't be complete till we get this out. C.S. Lewis, as always, says it best. Not that he said it better than the Apostle John, but he's got a way with the turn of phrase, if you know what I'm saying. So, C.S. Lewis says it this way. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It's, it's the appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. Why do you tell your children over and over, I love you, I love you, your spouse, your significant other, I love you, I love your siblings, your friends, I love you. They know. You tell them because the joy is incomplete until it is shared, expressed. The psalmist prays for his greatest joy, knowing God. And he prays for the completion of that joy, making God know. Shades, I will never attempt to guilt you into sharing the gospel. I will always aim to joy you into it. It's, it's our joy. This is the psalmist's God-centered mission. Mission keeps us centered on the God of the gospel. Not centered on ourselves, but on the God of the gospel. And, and if, if a pause right there, do you pick up an irony in what I'm saying right here? Like, like in being centered on God, not on ourselves, we actually get what's greatest for ourselves. We, we get the deepest possible joy. It's, it's like marriage. My marriage works best when I'm not centered on me and trying to make it all about me. I'm centered on Holly. She's centered on, this is when it works best, right? When we're centered on God, we actually get our deepest possible joy. When we lose our lives to being God-centered, we find true life. That sounds familiar. When we lose our lives, Jesus says in Mark 8, 35, when we lose our lives for his sake and for the gospels, we save it. We find it true, real so, how does mission keep us gospel-centered? By keeping us centered on the God of the gospel. Second. Second, mission keeps us centered on the goal of the gospel. Mission keeps us centered on the goal of the gospel. Look at verses 3 through 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So Asher shared the discovery of his sucker with Holly with the goal that she would join in his joy. 
He suffered persecution instead. But with the goal that she would join in his joy. And that's the aim of the psalmist as well. He prays to know God as his greatest treasure so that the world will see and embrace God as the greatest treasure. He prays for the world to join in his joy. Let the nations be glad. Let them sing for joy. He prays for them to join in his worship. Worship and joy are on both sides of mission. It is our joy and our worship of God that propel us into mission. We want to hold him up. We want the world to see him. Our joy is incomplete till it's shared. And our aim, our goal is that the world knows joy in him. Joy, worship, it's on both sides. It is both the motivation and it is both the aim. Worship of the one true God. Joy in the one true God. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the nations be glad. Let them sing for joy. That's the goal of the gospel. Joy in God. We want people to see the glory of God so that he becomes their joy. Did you notice that logic in verse 4? Like That's exactly the way the psalmist argues in verse 4. Let the nations be glad. Let them sing for joy. Four. Four. Like here's why they're going to be glad. Here's why they're going to sing for joy. It's because they're going to see the glory of God. Let them be glad, let them sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and you guide the nations upon the earth. He says, God, they'll be glad, they'll sing for joy when they see the glory of who you are. The righteous, sovereign ruler over all. That's what he says. For you judge, don't hear the word like judge, like condemn. The Hebrew right here more means govern, rule. You govern the peoples with equity, righteously, fairly. This world has never seen such a ruler. One who governs and rules with perfect righteousness. But the psalmist says, Lord, you do. You guide the nations Upon the, you're sovereignly ruling over all things right now, and you will bring all things to your righteous appointed ends. And if the world sees that, he says, if the world sees that, that you're, you're sovereign over all and that you are good, they will rejoice to know that history is in your hands. Shades, could our world use some good news like this right about now? Like when you look around the world, do you see much in the way of righteous rulers who guide the nations in righteousness? Do, do you see much in the way of hope? The world doesn't just listen to them talk. They see no hope. People feel pretty hopeless. And we have gospel good news of a righteous God who reigns. That rain will come in full one day. Many scholars think that this prayer right here in verses 3 through 5 is pointing us forward the hope of the psalmist for the day when God will bring his rule in and reign righteously, perfectly forever. But even now, we have good news that this God righteously reigns now. No matter what things look like, I know you're thinking, like, Jonathan, look around the world. How can you say that God sovereignly reigns over all and is good, righteous? That's one of the number one objections to our faith. How can you believe in a God who's sovereign over this and good 
and loving. I believe it because it's the testimony of Scripture, and I think if you make your way through Scripture, it makes sense. No matter what things look like right now, Romans 8 promises me that our sovereign God works all things together for good for those who love him. That even though right now the nations rage and make plots, Psalm 2 tells me that that's in vain, that God sits in the heavens and laughs because he sits in the heavens, as Psalm 115 says, and does all all that he pleases. Proverbs 21 and verse 1 tells me that the king's heart, every king on this planet, their heart is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. No matter what things look like, we have good news that we know a sovereign good God and therefore we can rejoice and be glad. For he wins. He wins. You still don't believe me? Let let me show you. Let me show you the cross. Let me show you the cross. You want to talk about a place where it looked like unrighteous rulers were reigning. You, you, You want to talk about a place where it looked like God wasn't guiding. Like you want to talk about a place where it looked like there was no hope. Let's talk about the cross. The cross where our sovereign God governed Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The cross where our sovereign God guided every nail into place. Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2 that it all happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The cross where our God showed his goodness in giving hope to the world through the death of his son in our place so that Christ might bring us back to God. The cross that gives us hope The cross is where Psalm 67 and verse 2 is most fully displayed. God's way being made known on the earth. His saving power being made known among all nations. This is God's way. Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. This is God's saving power. At the precise moment where it looked most like wickedness had won, God wins. He wins. This is his saving power. At the precise moment when it looks like all hope is lost, God wins. How do I know that God is ruling and reigning over our world sovereignly, good, and will bring it all to his sovereign, perfect, good conclusion? He did it there. That's the darkest place we've ever seen. And he did it there. He will do it. Everywhere, an empty tomb guarantees it. Christ's resurrection, the reversal of his death, guarantees a reversal of all things, of death and sin and the curse itself. Do you think the world could use such gospel good news? That no matter what it looks like, there is a sovereign good God Governing, guiding all things to his appointed ends. We tell that news to the nations and say, so you can be glad, nations. You can know there is a God who wins. And you can know him, have him through Christ. The God who's sovereign over all of history, you can have him through 
through Christ. A beautiful picture of this is given to us in Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5, there is a scroll. It's written on both sides. It's sealed with seven seals. It's a scroll that contains all of human history, everything past and everything that is to come. And no one is found in heaven or on earth or under the earth who is able or worthy to open the scroll. And John, the apostle who's seeing this vision, begins to weep. And an angel tells him, don't weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to open the scroll. He is worthy to be sovereign over all of human history. And John looks for a lion and he sees a lamb. A lamb standing as though slain. A lamb who died and yet stands and lives again. And a chorus echoes throughout the throne room of heaven. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why is he worthy? For you were slain, and your blood ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Why is he worthy? Because he has shown that he is the only one who can conquer. He was slain, and he rose, and with his blood, he bought a people. He's worthy, and we go and we tell the nations, you can have this God who's sovereign over all history, this God who, who is yours through Christ. You can have him through Christ as your joy forever, and you nations, you can be glad. This is the goal of the gospel, that the nations get God has their joy. How does mission keep us gospel-centered? By keeping us centered on the goal of the gospel. Third and final thing for us to see this morning. How does mission keep us gospel-centered? Mission keeps us centered on the guarantee of the gospel. I already just talked about that a little bit with Revelation 5. Mission keeps us centered on the guarantee of the gospel. Look at verses 6 and 7, the final two verses of the psalm. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. That all the ends of the earth fear him. So earlier I said that the psalm is partly a thanksgiving for a bountiful harvest. And we can see that right here in verse 6. The earth has yielded its increase. But notice the logic of the psalmist right here. The earth has yielded its increase. Like he looks at the harvest that they've just received, a gracious gift, a blessing from God that God did not have to give. And he looks at this concrete evidence of God's graciousness towards him and he concludes God will continue to be gracious to us. He looks at the faithfulness that God has shown him and says on the basis of past faithfulness, God will continue to be faithful to us. We see his faithfulness right here in front of us and he'll continue to be faithful. He says the earth has yielded its increase and what does that make me know? God, our God, shall in the future. He has blessed us, he'll keep doing it. He has been faithful, he'll keep being faithful. God shall bless us. God shall bless us. He says it twice. And he doesn't necessarily mean that God will continue to give them a bountiful harvest year after year. He's not that naive. 
Like this is the ancient world where something like a harvest can be wiped out. I mean, it can still be wiped out even now. Crops can be wiped out very quickly. Like he knows about things like lean years. He knows about things like famine. So what does he mean when he says God's going to continue to bless us into the future? I think he means what he prayed in verse 1. God will bless us by continuing to make his face shine upon us, by giving us himself harvest or no harvest. Like here's a small piece of evidence of God's goodness, graciousness, and faithfulness. I see a bigger picture. And he's going to keep giving us that into the future. He's going to keep giving us himself. Our God is good. He's sovereign. He governs with equity. He guides the nations of the earth. He will graciously bless us and give us himself. That's the guarantee of the gospel. And here's the deal, Shades. If this psalmist can look at the first fruits of the harvest, the first fruits of the harvest are those that first ripen. It's kind of like a promise that there's more coming. If he can look at the first fruits of the harvest and believe that, then we can look at Christ, who 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20 says is the first fruit of those risen from the dead. He's the first to rise. There's more coming. The rest of us. If this psalmist can look at the first fruits of that harvest, then we can look at our first fruits, Christ, risen from the dead, and believe that his empty tomb guarantees he will give us himself, no matter what. Like even on the day when we are staring down, entering our own tomb, we can know that his empty tomb guarantees our tomb is only a temporary destination. For just as Christ rose from the dead as the first fruits, one day there will be a great and final harvest and God will call all of us, his people, out of the grave and we will live and reign on the earth with him like we read about in Revelation chapter 5. We'll be a part of his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth forever. We get him as our joy. Psalm sixteen eleven. We will be in his presence forever and in his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That's the guarantee of the gospel. And if that's the guarantee, then it sets us free right now to live on mission. If you are guaranteed your greatest good forever, then you are free right now to live your life, risk everything for this, for the world, knowing joy in the glory of God. That's what the psalmist concludes. Look at verse 7 one last time. God shall bless us. He's guaranteed it. I've got guaranteed good news. I'm going to get God forever. God shall bless us. So what's his conclusion? Let all the ends of the earth fear him. The psalmist believes that he has a guarantee that he gets God. Nothing can take that away so he can give his life away to make his greatest treasure known. Like that's been the aim of his whole prayer. That God would use every single blessing he ever pours out upon his people to make his glory known to the ends of the earth. This prayer is for God to bless his people with his presence, yes, but also it's a prayer for any other blessing that God gives for all of that to be used to make God known, like the harvest in front of the psalmist right now. God, you've blessed us with this harvest. You, the earth has yielded its increase, so what's my conclusion? Let's use it to make the ends of the earth fear you. Let's, let's use it to make you known. Is this our conclusion? Like with any and every blessing that we receive, financial blessings, 
is our conclusion, Lord, let me use this to make you known. A house, a home that we're given as a blessing is our conclusion, Lord, let me use this to make you known. A marriage that's given to us as a blessing, Lord, let me use this to make you known. Singleness that's given to us as a blessing, Lord, let me use this to make you known. Family, education, health, a job, Lord, let me use it all to make you known. But above all, let me show that my greatest treasure is the blessing of having you. If I lose all those other blessings... Let me hold on to you as my treasure so the world may see that you are the greatest treasure there is. Shades, we can live this way because of the guarantee of the gospel. We get God in Christ for our joy forever so we can risk everything for the joy of the nations because in reality we risk nothing. We can risk everything because in reality we risk Nothing. To live is Christ. To die, gain. Because in life and in death, I get him. I win. Because he won. How does mission keep us gospel-centered? By keeping us centered on the guarantee of the gospel. So, Shades, let's pray like this. Like Psalm 67. Let's Let's pray for God to give us himself as our joy so that we might show the world he's the greatest joy. Let's pray centered on the God of the gospel. And shades, let's give like this. Let's give of every blessing we ever receive. Let's, let's give of every blessing so that the world might know God's saving power through Jesus Christ. So that they might know joy in Jesus their joy increases our joy because our joy isn't complete until it's shared. Shade, let's give centered on the goal of the gospel, the joy of the nations in Christ. And shades, let's go. Let's go to all peoples who so badly need to hear this good news, both locally and globally. We're going to talk more specifically about how we do that starting next week. But let's go locally Globally, go to all peoples, to all nations with the good news of a sovereign God who reigns. We can risk everything and go because in reality, we risk nothing. We have a guarantee that even if this mission should cost us our life, we still have true life in Christ. Let's go centered on the guarantee of the gospel. Shades, let's, let's sink our roots ever deeper into the gospel. At the close of, of this series, here, here is my prayer, that all of our worship, all of our serving, and all of our community will culminate in mission and that it will all keep us centered on the gospel for the glory of God and Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit. We pray these things. Amen.